Well, good evening, everybody. Welcome to Pastor's Corner Live. Those of you that are live with us tonight and those of you that are out on Facebook Live, we're glad that you're here. Let me give you a few announcements to make sure we're on the same page. Uh, Next Wednesday night, uh, May the 1st, will be our Awana Award Night, and that's going to be taking place right here. And so those of you that have kids and those of you, I I didn't see any bloody noses or anything from the dads battling over the pine car races uh, a few weeks ago. So that was a good sign, and those things are going to happen. So everybody will be back in here. Uh, next uh, Wednesday night for that. And then the following Wednesday night will be the Wednesday night that our our, uh, music ministry prepares for the Mother's Day presentations and everything that's going to be happening is for that special day on Mother's Day and Kids Choir, the Praise Patrol, and the little ones, they all uh, get together and do a great job for that. So that means tonight is the last night of Pastor's Corner Live for this semester. And so we've been taking this journey through uh, First Peter with us. And so what I would encourage you to do is if we kind of take this break, I'm hearing sneers and jeers up here toward the front. Some of you are going, yes, glory, and others have a boo, so I'm not really sure. Here's what I would encourage you to do. If you're new to Oak Ridge, let me kind of back up just a little bit. If you're new, uh, we do this for a couple of reasons. One is, you know, we offer something for all ages every time that we come together. So uh, we do this uh, break. We kind of take a break from Mother's Day till August when we kick back up with the uh, with the, uh, the school year and the things that are happening. So during the summer with mission trips and camps and vacation Bible schools and all these things, sometimes our volunteers get spread a little thin. And so this gives them an opportunity to kind of catch their breath and be involved in some other things. And so we do that. The second thing that it gives us an opportunity to be able to do is it gives me a chance as I kind of look forward to the coming semester on Sunday morning uh, sermon series and also on Wednesday night. It gives me the chance to be prepared and be ready so that I give you something. So when we come together, the last Last thing I want to do is not make it worth your while to be here. So it gives us that opportunity uh, to be able to do that. But what Wednesday nights during these times uh, that we have off here at the church also give us the opportunity to do. It gives you the opportunity to be able to look around your ABF classes, look around people that are, are coming to Oak Ridge. And now you have a Wednesday night available. Now you can say, hey, let's go have dinner together. Hey, stop by the house. Let's have dessert tonight or something. Use this as an opportunity to make those connections with other members and folks that we have in the church body. And that way we can grow not only spiritually, but we also grow together in that community of faith and that koinonia that the New Testament talks to us about. So tonight being our last uh, night of Pastor's Corner Life for this semester, we're kind of at a closing portion of the book of First Peter. So tonight we're going to wrap up the book of First Peter. When we come back together in August, we're going to start a new study on the book of Philippians. And so over the summer, if you want to be reading through that book, we're going to be taking a journey through there talking about how that uh, we're, we're to be flying the flag of joy over the heart, over our castles and everything that we do. And so that's kind of the theme of that. So we'll be looking at the book of Philippians together. But as you know, we're in First Peter entitled, Bitter or Better, You Decide. Peter's been writing to us about persevering in the face of persecution. And what we said all along in this study is, no, we may not be struggling with persecution the way the original recipients of this letter were struggling. We may not be facing the persecution that they were under Nero and the things that he was doing. And no, we may not be facing the persecution like those that are in Sri Lanka and places like that for their faith and who that they believe in. But whatever persecution that we are facing, for whatever reason God placed us in the United States of America at the time that he did for such a time as this, whatever persecution that we do face, 
for our faith, we need to be ready for it. We need to be prepared. We need to understand. And so that's exactly what Peter is doing in this uh, letter is he's making sure that we understand how that we can live bitter and, or excuse me, better and not bitter when we face difficult times in our life. So tonight I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to read a lengthy passage. We're going to start reading in verse 12 almost to the end of chapter 5. And, and, and really what's going on here is that in light of everything that Peter has shared up to this point, everything that we've been talking about in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, now into the middle of chapter 4, Peter's beginning this process of closing this letter out. And what we're going to do is we're going to look at this prescription that he's going to give us here as we get into chapter 5 of how that now we can, as we move into trouble sometimes, as we move into whatever persecution that we're going to face, he's going to kind of close the letter out with giving us some tools by which we can face whatever persecution that we do. So he begins kind of closing the letter out in chapter 4 and verse 12 when he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. All right, he's been talking about it long. Don't, don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised when you have some persecution that falls your way like you never expected it to happen. He says, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed. Because the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. In other words, if you're being persecuted because you're living for God, guess what? That's because you've got God in you. That's because the Holy Spirit rests in you. And you ought to be excited about that. Make sure, verse 15, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. Don't revert back to your old way of doing things. Don't, don't get persecuted for that. Verse 16, but if anyone suffers as a Christian... He is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name. For it, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. If I kind of talked to you in the past a little bit that the New Testament writers b- believed totally 100% in the imminent return of Jesus Christ. When Jesus talked to them about, I'm coming back again, they expected it to be in their lifetime. So oftentimes when they went through persecution and these things, they'll say, there it is right there. He talked about there was going to be troubles, there was going to be difficulty. We see that Jesus is right around the corner. So he says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. It's here. Jesus is coming back any moment. We should expect these kind of struggles. Then he said, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Remember, we talked about last week how that we're going to participate in the judgment seat of Christ. And if, and if judgment's going to happen for us first and the things that have a relationship with God, then he's saying, Think about what it's going to be like for those that do not have a relationship with God. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved. You remember Good Friday? Remember what we talk about on Thursday and Friday of this past week? What did we talk about? We talked about the suffering and we talked about the struggle and we talked about everything that Jesus went through so that we could have eternal life. If that's what Christ had to go through for us to be saved, then how much more do you think the suffering is going to be for someone that doesn't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? That's what he's trying to get across here. For it is time for the judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel? 
And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Therefore, now pastors, listen very carefully. In light of everything that I've just shared with you in the first four chapters, exhort, I exhort pastors among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet is lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, guess what? At that judgment seat of Christ, there's going to be a reward for you pastors that do what I'm encouraging you to do here. I'm, I'm exhorting you pastors, equip the saints, teach them the word, do all the things that are necessary for them to live better and not bitter in the midst of difficulty. And by the way, you younger men, now that possibly could be talking to um, younger pastors, young, that young, uh, younger men that are being mentored into the faith. It possibly could just be talking to uh, younger, more not quite as mature believers that are in the fellowship. It could be talking to actual young men as they're looking up to other older men in the church. There's a lot of debate over that. But it says here, and you young men, likewise be subject to your elders. Okay, so that kind of makes sense where we are. That's kind of a big passage of scripture right there, but he's making this transition to the end of the chapter. Now we come to the last part of the letter that I want us to really concentrate on tonight under the title, When the Going Gets Tough. How do you finish that? The tough get going. We know that, right? Okay, so when the going gets tough, hey, Christians, it's time for us to do what? Sit and sulk and get bitter. No, he's like, no, that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We need to get going. So when the going gets tough, let's see what he says. He says, all of you, I'm not just talking to the pastors now. I'm not just talking to the young men. I'm talking to all of the beloved. That's how he started it out there in verse 12. The word beloved, he's referencing Christians. If you're here today and you're saved, if you're here today and you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, what he's about to say is applicable to you and to all of you. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. No doubt many of you have heard the old saying that when it comes to trouble, there's three kinds of people. There are those that are in trouble, those that are coming out of trouble, or those that are about to experience trouble. Well, if we kind of put that into context with what Peter is saying in this passage of Scripture when it comes to Christians and persecution, there are those that are being persecuted for their faith. They're in trouble because they've stood up for their faith. 
There are those that have been in trouble, that have been being persecuted because of their faith. And if that's not where you are, then just know you're going to be in trouble at some point in your life if you stand up for God and do the things that he's asking you to do. And so that's kind of what we've been talking about as we've been taking this journey together. And so what Peter is kind of wrapping this letter up by saying is, if you live as a Christian in this world, if you live as a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ, if you choose to live biblical standards on your job, in your, in your home, the things that you do, go ahead and understand you are going to face some difficult times in your life. I heard a preacher put it this way. He said, you may as well try to sell firewood in hell as to get through this life without trouble if you're going to try to live like a Christian. It's just going to be that way. It's just going to be said, well, pastor, I never have any problems. Well, you're probably not living it. It's kind of a bold statement, isn't it? Either you only hang out with other Christian friends or you're really not living it in the world and standing up for the things because this world is getting more and more anti to the things of Christ. So to wrap up his letter, Peter's offering us this surefire formula. He said, if you're going to live as a fully devoted follower of Christ, knowing that you're going to deal with some difficulty, if you want to make sure you know what actions you need to take so that you're able to live better and not bitter, He said, when the going gets tough, I want to give you the surefire formula. I want to give you the actions you must take in order to be ready for whenever it is that you stand before Christ and give an account for what you did with your salvation. And so when the going gets tough, the first thing that Peter says to you and I is, when the going gets tough, I need to surrender my will to God. I need to surrender my will to God. Look at verse 5. All of you, remember he's talking to all Christians, all of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Underline that phrase right there, clothe yourselves. If you'd like to mark in your Bible right there in verse 5, he says, clothe yourself. In the Greek, this root word, clothe, it comes from the Greek word that talks about a long white robe or a long apron that had tie strings on it that a slave would wear during that culture. That was the word clothed that he uses here. It's an outer garment that a slave would tie onto themselves before they would go out into the field and do any work for their master or before they would cook a meal for their master. They literally would cinch this onto their body. And so in this verse, Peter's implying That when you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you are what? Saved. Then you now have the responsibility to tie onto yourself the act of humility when it comes to God being your master. Now, I've kind of mentioned in the past that oftentimes when we start talking about masters and slaves with our American culture... It kind of becomes very uncomfortable. And so even our, even our American translations have changed the words to like bond servants and these kind of words because we're trying to distance the biblical understanding of the master-slave relationship from American history. But if you go back and you study in that period of time, a person that was truly a slave of the other, a bond servant of the other, it's because they chose to be in that relationship. They may have been an indentured servant at some point. 
They may have been captured as a result of a military exercise at some point. They may have become a debtor to someone at some point and had become their servant. But after a period of time when they had fulfilled their obligation and they were now released to be free, that person understood they were in a better position coming underneath the lordship of that master than they could have ever been by themselves. And at that moment, they chose to give themselves over to another. They chose to sign themselves over. They chose to say, I'm in a better situation by submitting to you being the head of my life than I ever could have done anything by myself. Now, listen. If you confess with your mouth the master, Jesus Christ, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. In other words, if you're at the point that you realize it would be better for you to sign yourself over to Jesus because you're dead in your trespasses and sin. And you are going to die and go to hell unless you come underneath his authority. This is what we're talking about here. He's talking about when we come to the point that we give ourselves over to God at that moment, we should tie on this garment called humility. At that moment, when we talk about those things in light of what the New Testament is talking about to us, a slave chooses to have no will whatsoever. Their only desire is to do the will of his or her master. A slave's life in this context can be summed up in two words, submission and service. A slave's actions in this context can be summed up in two actions, to determine the master's will and to do the master's work. And even though a person may choose that way, though they may choose to come underneath that headship, it still requires humility for it to continue down that journey, down that path. I may understand that it's better for me to come underneath the headship of another because I was making a mess of everything. So I'm going to humble myself by letting that one Lord over me. But there's still this human battle that takes place to want to say, I don't want to come underneath that authority. I want the protection. I want the goodness. I want the being taken care of. But I don't want to really subject myself to total control of someone else. And in this passage of scripture, Peter says, if you're going to be able to deal with the persecution that comes in your life, first and foremost, you have to tie on humility to the one that gave his all so that you could have eternal life. To the one that was willing to endure what he did so that you wouldn't have to endure what it is that you deserve. Therefore, in the way that you can live better and not bitter, humble yourselves. Look at verse six. Humble yourselves, put on humility under the mighty hand of God. And here's why you want to do that. So that he might exalt you or lift you up or raise you up at the proper time. See, we may not think that we want to humble ourselves, but the reason that we do want to humble ourselves is because that's the only way that we'll be lifted up in the way that God does things. In other words, in God's economy, you have to get as low as you possibly can get before you're ever going to get up. 
You you have to be willing to totally submit yourself to the total control of God before he's going to lift you up and to put you into places of authority. That's what our focal passage was a few years ago. Take your Bibles and turn over to Philippians chapter 2. Some of you could quote that, but I want us to all look at that in our Bibles. In Philippians chapter 2, we were talking about how that we we need to make sure that we're doing things the way that God would have us to do it. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, In light of this verse 6 where he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Look what, look what we see in Philippians chapter 2. He says, verse, verse 3, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Who are we supposed to regard as more important than ourselves? One another. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be held on to or a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a... There's our good, nice, clean, sterile English translation. Taking on the form of a slave. That's the word that we find there. Submitting himself totally in humbleness to the authority of someone else. Who's the authority of someone else that Jesus submitted himself to? God the Father, right? He's God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He's on equal plane, but he chose to strap on humility. And become the slave. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man. What did he do? He strapped on humility. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And I know you've thought about this before, but but sometimes do we really take the time to make sure that we understand if there was anyone that had the right to exalt himself so others would look up to him, it's Jesus Christ. You understand what I'm saying? We're talking about the creator. We're talking about the one that created the heavens and created the earth and and created all living beings. And he had every right to demand that everything give him the glory, give him the praise, give him the honor. Yet... He chose to put on the servant's apron. And before he leaves earth, he says, I want to make sure that you understand what I came to this earth to do. And he goes and he straps on the apron and gets down on his knees and washes the disciples' feet. He strapped on spiritually and he literally strapped on physically what he's trying to get across and what Paul's trying to help us understand in this passage of Scripture. Being found in appearance of man, he strapped on humility himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He went as low as he possibly could go. The creator began serving the created You following me? You see the flip of our American culture here? Now verse 9. And for this reason, because he was willing to strap on the humility 
For this reason, what did God do? God highly exalted him. Because he was willing to serve, God lifted him up. Because he was willing to do the will of the Father, God said, I'm going to bestow something on you that's amazing. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name which is above every other name, so that, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those in, that are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. And it does not seem rational. It does not seem intelligent, but what Peter is saying, when the going gets tough, when you start facing things in your life for your fellowship of God, surrender yourself to the will of God in that situation. Because when you surrender yourself to God's will in that situation, that's when God steps in and God will do the lifting up that you need to be able to handle that situation. So the first thing we have to do is we have to surrender my will to God's. I have to strap on humility in each and every situation. Then when the going gets tough, what Peter then tells us is I need to send my worry to God. After I surrender to my my will, to God's will, whatever he wants in this situation, then I need to send my worry to God. Don't you kind kind of get frustrated with people that don't think Christians ever have struggles or difficulties in their life? They always think we just walk around on the peaks. There's no valleys for us. That everything's just always happy. There's no struggles. That, that, that things are always just peachy king. They're never kind of bad. There's always joy and no pain. I can tell you from firsthand experience as a Christian, I experienced some cares in my life. Anybody else? Anybody else get any cares? Yeah. Man, y'all raise your hand on that one. You want for that tithing thing, but y'all will on that one right there. Amen. You know, Christians have cares. We have things that make us anxious. And so in this passage of scripture, Peter tells us exactly what to do with our cares and with our worries and those things that really get us down. Look at verse seven, cast all your anxiety, cast all of your cares, cast all of your burdens, depending on what translation you have, cast it on him. Now that word cast is a very interesting word. It's the same word that we find in the book of Luke chapter 19 and verse 35. Jesus sends it his, his disciples and he says, I want you to go into town and I want you to find a little donkey that's never been ridden. I want you to bring him back to me. And they take him. And according to Luke chapter nine and verse 35, they brought this, this colt to Jesus and they cast their coats upon the back of it before he sat down on it. That's the same word that Peter uses here in this passage of scripture that says we are to throw our burdens on God. We are to literally cast them onto him. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to throw our worries. We're to cast our cares onto the back of God. Another way that that word is also translated is it talks about making a deposit at the bank. Now, it's a little bit different than in that day. But in today's day, when we go to the bank and we deposit our money, who deposits their money into a bank today and worries about it when they drive off? You understand what I'm asking you? How many of you go through the drive-thru? How many of you go to the ATM and you deposit money into the bank and you drive off going, oh my goodness, I just don't know if I'll ever see that money again. Anyone? What do you always trust? That if you put your money in there, where's it going to be? It's going to be in that bank account. It's going to be exactly where it is that you left it. And that's what Peter's trying to help us understand. In the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the struggle, whatever it is that you're dealing with, you are to cast your worry. You are to deposit your worry into God's account. 
And at that moment, you no longer have to worry about it because you know where it is. You know exactly who's taking care of it. You know exactly that it's going to be handled. So when you pray, well, I love the way Mike says it. He says, God, as we come to your throne of grace, that's what we're doing when we're praying. We're coming to God's throne of grace and we are casting off of us the burden. We are casting off of us the worry. We are casting off of us the anxiety that we're feeling. And we're leaving it to him for him to be able to deal and to do with it the way that he sees best in our life. Now, unfortunately, we're not very good at that, are we? We talk about going to the altar on Sunday morning and laying our burdens down. And what do we do? We pick them up and we carry them back to the seat with us. That's kind of the way he talks about it. I heard this joke recently talking about this anxiety part. Uh, There was an old man that uh, had never ridden in an airplane. And so his grandkids were really wanting him to ride an airplane before he died. I don't know what that had to do with it, but that's what they wanted him to do. And so they finally talked him into it, and they get a private plane for him, and they take him up and kind of fly around the neighborhood and fly over his house and just around just about a 20-minute ride. And he lands, and the grandkids all run out to the plane. They're like, hey, Grandpa, how'd you like it? How'd you like it? And this is what his response was. Well, it was all right, but I never did put my full weight into it. Somehow I'm going to be up in this plane and I'm not going to trust it completely, right? I'm not going to give everything that I have. George MacDonald once said this. He said, no man ever sank underneath the burden of that day. It is when tomorrow's burden is added to the burden of today that the weight is more than a man can bear. Never load yourself so. If you find yourself so loaded... At least, remember this, it is your doing and not God's. He begs you to leave the future to him and you mind the present. That's what the psalmist is trying to get across in Psalm 55, 22. Cast your burden upon the Lord and he will what? Sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. But what is the precursor to the righteous not being shaken? What do you have to do? You have to cast, you have to throw, you have to deposit your burdens up up on the who? Upon the Lord. So when the going gets tough, God wants you to bring your burdens to him. When the going gets tough, God wants you to leave all of your burdens with him. And there's a reason for that. Look at verse seven. Cast all your anxiety on him. And here's why. He cares for you. Probably one of the biggest lies ever told in the history of mankind is nobody cares. Nobody cares about you. Nobody cares what you're going through. Nobody cares what what you're feeling right now. Nobody cares. But from your birth to your death and every moment in between, this verse of Scripture tells us what? That God cares. This word cares, it's written in the present tense, which means that it's a continuous action. He cares for you right now. He cares for you right in the midst of everything that you're going. It's a continuous thing that takes place. If you really kind of broke this down the way that this this is constructed in that language, it says lay all your burdens or throw all your anxiety on God because he always, every day, in every way, at every moment is caring for you. 
That's a powerful verse right there if we can understand that. So when we're going through tough times, as Peter kind of has told us to expect, he says, here's the way you're going to get through it. Surrender my will to God. Send my worry to God. And then thirdly, be willing to allow God to strengthen you. Strengthen my walk. I need to be about strengthening my walk with God. Look at verse 8. He says, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. In case you don't know it, because you're not in trouble right now and things are kind of on easy street for you, or maybe you're out of trouble, whatever it is that you're going through. If you don't know it, what this passage of Scripture is reminding us here is that you and I have an enemy and he never rests and he's never not trying to mess up our life. Jesus says, I've come that you may have life and have it abundantly, but there's this enemy that you have. And guess what he wants to do? He wants to steal, kill, and to destroy. And it is a 24-7 job that he has. And so your enemy studied every part of you. He knows you inside and out. He, he knows what your strengths are. He knows what your weaknesses are. He knows the best way to get under your skin. He knows the best people to cause to be in your path so that he can cause you to be defeated and to exploit your weaknesses. And what we have to remember is what Winston Churchill told the, uh, the House of Commons one day when he gave this advice. He said, we must always be ready to meet at our average moment anything that any possible enemy could hurl against us at their selected moment. We have to always be ready in our most mundane moment to be ready for the best that an enemy can follow in us or throw at us. So following Churchill's advice, the application that Peter gives us is to be forewarned is to be forearmed. That's what he's telling us. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And so in this verse, Peter gives us some forewarning how to be forearmed for the enemy's attack that's coming our way. First of all, he says, be serious about Satan's reality. This is kind of where he starts. He said, you've got this enemy that's trying to destroy you, and you need to understand you need to be serious about Satan's reality. Be of sober spirit. Be of a seriousness about you. You've heard me say this all the time. I'm opposed to people dre- dressing their kids up as, as Satan for Halloween. I, in your notes, some of you are going to come up at the end of, uh, uh, of the service and say, Pastor, uh, Satan is a proper noun, and you didn't capitalize it. I don't capitalize his name when I write anything. I believe that he's in existence, but he doesn't get a capital letter like my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ does. It's just something I do in my writing and things. I got marked off in my dissertation, right and left, because I'm not capitalizing. I don't care what you say. But what we do is we, 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 we kind of personalize him to not be so bad. I mean, I, I know y'all were never this poor, but we used to eat potted meat as a kid. Anybody remember that? And what was the picture on the potted meat, on the, on the paper on the outside? It was, it was the devil, right? And he was just this little horned devil with a little pitchforky, fork tail kind of deal. That's not who it is that we face. That's not who our adversary is. Is. As a matter of fact, that word adversary, it means a legal opponent in a lawsuit. Be understanding that Satan is somebody you better pay attention to because he is your opponent in a legal lawsuit. Listen to what the book of Revelation chapter 12 and verse 12 says, uh, 1210. It says, then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God 
and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser, the adversary of our brethren has been thrown down who accuses them before our God day and night. Satan is hell's district attorney. He is constantly bringing up evidence. He is constantly trying to condemn us for our sins. And so what Peter says in this passage of Scripture is, if you are going to live better and not bitter, then you have to be serious about the reality of Satan. You remember a few weeks ago I talked about when it came to, 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 to prophecy, that you had those, those prophecy addicts that, oh, boy, they just couldn't get enough. And then you had those prophecy, those, those ostriches that buried their head. That's kind of the same way when it comes to Satan. You got these people that think Satan is so powerful and we can't do anything about him. And then you got these other ones that thinks he's kind of cute and he's kind of fun to play with and all those kind of things. Understand he is an adversary. Understand he is an enemy. This is what Peter is trying to get across in this passage of Scripture. So you have to keep these things on your spiritual radar. When it comes to spiritual warfare and it comes to attacks, you have to keep your spiritual radar on. That's why he says, be on the alert. Pay attention. Don't let your guard down. And here's why. When you're trying to live better and not better, you have this accuser, you have this adversary, you have this real force that's trying to steal, kill, and to destroy. As a matter of fact, let me help you understand, Peter says, he's the devil, he's the diabolos, he's the slanderer, he's the liar that prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, I preached on this passage of scripture in Cuba a few years ago, and I talked about the ferocious lions and how that they will eat you up. And, that, and the Cubans just kept looking at me. And they were just kind of looking, and finally one of them just kind of chuckled. And I went, how can you chuckle about this ferocious lion? And they're like, we have one lion in Cuba, and it's in the zoo in Havana, and we're so poor we can't feed it meat, so he gets bananas every day. And you can go grab his tail and pick it up, and he never even looks at you. You know what I'm saying? So that wasn't a good illustration for the Cubans right there, okay? But this is a great illustration for the period of that day. That day, they had lions roaring to and fro, seeking. They were hungry. They wanted to eat somebody up. We don't walk down the street and think, oh, there's a lion. You know, let's kind of run from that. But these are bad dudes, okay? For instance, let me tell you a little bit about that. We used to watch Tarzan on Saturday afternoons, and Tarzan could always beat the lions up. You know what I'm saying? They got into a wrestling match. Do you realize that a lion is 14 to 21 times stronger than the average man? 14 to 21 times larger and stronger. And so when Peter, Peter says, hey, I want you to understand about Satan, that Satan is a roaring lion. I read this about the roar of a lion. A lion's roar may be heard over a distance of nearly five miles. The sound of that roar registers somewhere between one and three kilohertz. To put this in perspective, if the deepest bass gospel singer tried to sing that loud he would blow every vocal cord in his larynx. The roar is so loud and so low that if a lion were to roar near you, it would literally vibrate through your entire body. It's not just coincidence that Peter uses this idea of the roaring lions. Why do lions roar? Do you know? 
It's to incapacitate their prey for a split second. The roar is so ferocious and it's so powerful that it startles the prey, and that's as long as they need to be able to attack. Just the split second. And Peter says, be serious that you have an enemy, and he's just looking for a split second. He's just looking for that one moment. He's just looking for that one opportunity. He doesn't need years to mess you up. He just needs that split second. And Satan uses the tool of fear to paralyze us so that he can begin the process of messing us up. So is it any wonder that in the Bible you find 365 verses of Scripture, one for every day, that tells you how to deal with fear in your life? Because fear, he is a liar. And he tries to tell you things that aren't true just long enough to freeze you so that you can be attacked. attacked. Now, let's think about this. If, if the picture here is of Satan being a roaring lion, roaring lions like to eat sheep during that period of time. What are we equated to in this period of time in Scripture? We're sheep. Who's our shepherd? Jesus is our shepherd. So what does the Bible tell us in 1 John 4, 4? He says, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Satan is a supernatural power, but we have a greater supernatural power that's inside of us, which means the third thing that we can do when it comes to this area of our life is that we can resist when the devil attacks us. Sometimes they think, well, I can't do anything about it. Yeah, we can. We can be serious about Satan's reality. We can keep up our spiritual radar, paying attention when Satan's attacking. And then when he does, then we can resist. Okay? The Bible does not guarantee us that we will not have difficulties. What is this whole book about? You will suffer. You will have troubles. You will have difficulties. Jesus said, if they mess with me, they're going to mess with you. The Bible does not say we will not have difficulties for being a Christian. But what it does say is that if we will, listen to what James says in James 4, 7. He says, if you resist the devil, what will happen? He will flee from you. Just like a man is no challenge for a lion because the lion is physically stronger. We are no spiritual match from Satan in and of ourselves. But with the power of God living inside of us, we have the power to be able to resist. Well, how do we do that? Well, Peter tells us there in verse 9. Resist him firm in your what? Faith. Firm in your faith. Firm in your prayer life, firm in your church attendance, firm in your fellowship of sanctification of what God asks you to do, firm in your understanding of who God is in comparison to who Satan is. You have to be firm in your faith. And when you're firm in your faith, then you can resist him knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. You following what he's saying there? He's saying, when you get off over here by yourself, and just like a roaring lion likes to do, he always likes to get the little sick one or the old one over here by themselves, and he's going to gobble them up. When you stay where you're supposed to stay, when you follow the things of Scripture, when you do the things that God, and you remain firm in your faith, then you're going to be able to resist that attack that's going to come in that direction, and you're going to be able to stand up for what's right. The, the, the story goes that, you know, big lion, the joke, the big lion's going through the jungle, and he sees this, 
He sees this bunny rabbit, this little cute bunny rabbit hopping through the jungle. And he runs and roars as loud as he can. He said, who's the greatest in the jungle? And the bunny rabbit goes, oh, you are. You know, you're the great lion. So he, he walks up to a monkey and roars really loud. You know, and the monkey's all scared. And he's like, well, who's the greatest in the jungle? And he says, well, well, you are naturally. You're the king of the, you know, the king of the animals. He walks up to an elephant and he roars. And the elephant wraps his tusk around him and bangs him back and forth a couple of times. Throws him up against the tree. You know, the, 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 the lion hits the tree and kind of slides down to the problem. He said, just because you didn't know the answer didn't mean you had to get so mad at me. You know, and that's sometimes the way that we act. We act like we don't have the answer. And we let Satan defeat us. And even in his defeat, he knows he's already lost. He knows that he doesn't have the power really to overcome us, overcome us. So he uses fear and he uses temptations and he uses all those things about us. And so we have to be very careful to put into practice these things that we're talking about, especially in this letter. I read this one time. It said, we are not in a universe where a good lion and a bad lion are engaged in some eternal battle and the outcome is uncertain. The devil in this verse is called a roaring lion. But there is another lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lord Jesus Christ. This satanic lion may be the king of the jungle. But Judah's lion is the king of the universe. That's who it is that we serve that gives us the power to be able to choose better and not bitter. So when the going gets tough, then what Peter says, learn to surrender my will to God, send my worry to God, and strengthen my walk with God. And then he closes out in verse 10. He says, and here's the good news. You may suffer, but it's only going to be for a little while. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. William Burns was a famous missionary to, uh, to China. And when he was leaving Scotland one time, uh, he, he, he was asked this question. He, they said, I suppose you're going to China to convert the heathen. And he said, no, I'm going to China to bring glory to God. You and I are going to face persecution for our faith in this world. And it's in that moment of persecution we have to choose. Am I going to live bitter or am I going to live better? Am I going to glorify myself or am I going to glorify the one who gave his all so that I could have eternal life? Am I going to live bitter or am I going to live better? You have to decide. And if this isn't enough to help you make that decision, let me remind you one last time. You may be the only Bible that somebody ever reads. For their sake, choose better and not bitter. You decide. Father, we thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to study your word. We thank you, Holy Spirit, for inspiring it so that we have it to be able to read knowing it is absolute truth and we don't have to question that. Father, I thank you for each person, each family that's represented here tonight and for their faithfulness and the privilege that I have to be able to open God's word with them and take the journey with them. 
Father, we pray over the next uh, few months until we come back together again that we'll not just be hearers of this word, but we'll be doers. And we'll use these opportunities to be able to grow our relationships and our friendships in this great church that we call home. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.